You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon, reporting remotely for WFHB. This is Don Guerra. And I'm Nikki Stewart-Ingersoll. This is the WFHB Local News for Monday, October 18, 2021. Later in the program, WFHB News talked to social work students who protested the City of Bloomington's National Conference on Police Social Work. More coming up in the bottom half of our show. Also coming up in the next half hour, we have some recent prison-related news and announcements from the producers of our public affairs program, KiteLine. But first, your local headlines. The Bloomington City Council pushed back against the proposed budget at the October 13th meeting. Mayor John Hamilton introduced the 2022 city budget and warned council members that the 2021 budget will be reinstated if the new budget is not approved. Uh, Several of you have indicated that if particular changes that you believe are warranted are not made, uh, that you will not vote for the budget as a whole. Now, I do not doubt that each one of us, uh, if assembling the budget for the city, would make some different choices, whether minor or major. Uh, But tonight, there is one budget ordinance upon which to act. And the council's options, again, for the ordinance are to adopt it as is, reduce parts of it, or reject it altogether. Uh, I strongly urge the council to pass this budget ordinance. Council member Susan Sandberg commented that she would rather renegotiate the budget with the mayor rather than approve a budget she does not agree with. She said she would prefer to see sufficient funding for the basic necessities and wait to fund additional amenities. So my question is, rather than give us these stark choices, you either accept this budget, hold your nose and vote for it, even though there are parts of it that you think are actually going to be quite harmful to the city, or you scuttle it and cause all kinds of havoc for the city, which I'm fairly certain me. Or we sit down at the table and we try to negotiate some of these reprioritizations. And as we've just heard, we do have the ability to change this budget between now and the time it has to be submitted under state statute. So again, it's a big question. Are you willing to sit down and continue to negotiate with some of us on making sure that this budget is palatable? Council member Matt Flaherty also said that he would be voting no on the budget unless changes were made. He said that he did not agree with the budget's inability to meet the demands of the city's climate action plan. But I voted no during our committee the whole meeting two weeks ago on this uh, ordinance, explaining that I could not support the civil city budget as proposed, and that view has not changed. Um, In particular, I described several changes I would need to see to get to a budget that I could support, and those were based on what I see as fundamental and critical ways in which we are falling short. Uh, Specifically with regard to the climate crisis and the city's adopted plans and goals, I feel I've communicated all of this very clearly over the course of the past few weeks and months Um, in meetings and communications with the mayor. I've also tried to be creative and flexible on how we could work together to meet 
what I see as key priorities um, and that had been narrowed from a much fuller set of, of priorities. Uh, I believe these were very reasonable, quite limited, and rooted very clearly in the legislatively adopted plans and goals of the city. And I don't feel that our disagreement is a mere difference of opinion with regard to how to meet a particular priority. I do worry that the priority isn't fully shared. Um, one example specifically, it seems quite plain based on council meetings and council member questions that the administration has answered that we are not in a position to implement the climate action plan the city has developed and this council has approved. And this just simply isn't acceptable to me. Um, the climate crisis is a central and defining challenge of our time, including for the city and for people everywhere. It is a uh, significant justice and equity issue. And I see it as central to my job and my role as an elected official to address this crisis and specifically to hold the city accountable to the plans that we adopt and approve. Councilmember Isabel Piedmont-Smith pointed out the mayor's role in collaborating with the council to pass a budget. She emphasized that both parties share 50% of the budget obligations. That way, the council should have just as much input. Councilmember Steve Volan explained that the mayor can increase funds in the budget, but the council can only decrease funding. He highlighted the fact that the position for a director of climate action has not been funded and only the mayor has the ability to change that. According to our newly printed climate action plan, by 2050, there are gonna be 49 days a year above 95 degrees. It's gonna come as a surprise to no one that uh, one of this mayor's budgets might not actually pass this year. Uh, we're seeing open revolt by a majority of council. In my experience and to my knowledge, there has never been a vote to reject the mayor's proposed budget. If it happens tonight, it'll be a precedent of local historic proportions. President Jim Sims said that based on his colleagues' comments, it is quite clear that the budget still needs work. The city council recessed for the night and will revisit the budget at 6.30 p.m. on October 27th. On October 12th at the Bloomington Board of Public Works meeting, the board discussed the 7th Street Protected Bike Lane project. Senior Project Manager Roy Atten gave an overview of the project's funding and explained the changes they have made to the contract with Milestone Contractors. Uh, this project was awarded on May 11th, 2021 to Milestone Contractors. The notice proceed was issued this spring and work began in early April. This contract included the installation of a protected bike lane along 7th Street from the B-Line Trail to North Woodlawn Avenue. The original contract for this project was $2,569,500. Change Order 1 uh, will deduct $1,789.98 from the contract as being presented to adjust the quantities for the concrete bus stops, curbs, sidewalks, and pavement patching on the project. Change order number three is being presented and it will add $1,390.67 for additional work that was required for the relocation of the program and programming of the bicycle counters on the project. Total for the change orders will result in a deduct of the contract of $399.31. And funding for this project is provided by our 2018 Bicentennial Bond Series Board member Beth Hollingsworth asked about the educational outreach the project has been doing to reach the public. I know that we have done uh, public meetings before the project began. 
we've been in contact with all the adjacent businesses, neighbors uh, throughout the project. We've sent out letters and we've had a lot of conversations. We've done a public service announcement last week just to alert everyone of the new traffic patterns that are involved on the project. And uh, we'll continue to work with all the adjacent property owners throughout the rest of the project as it continues through November. Senior project engineer Neil Copper shared that they have been getting more questions from the public since the construction is almost finished and that they are working with the Planning and Transportation Department to decide what future outreach they can do. The board approved the changes to the contract with Milestone Contractors unanimously. The next board meeting will be held on October 26th. On October 13th at the Monroe County Board of Commissioners meeting during public comment, resident Guy Loftman thanked the commissioners and Monroe County staff for their work, saying that he has been able to pay more attention due to the meetings being held on Zoom. It's so easy to assume that everything is in good hands uh, with with our elected officials. And generally speaking, I think it's true. But I really saw it in action uh, and especially the commissioners yourselves, I, you know, looking at contracts for road surfacing and and the development thing that affected me and the covid and the emergency management uh it's it's I've I've been getting much more up close and personal. Well, you know, by Zoom than I than I than I usually do. And uh, I want to thank you and and say for in in my opinion, our county is in good hands. Shelter Outreach and Safe Place Program Coordinator Bridget Nesby presented a contract with National Cinemedia to promote the Safe Place program to Monroe County residents in AMC movie theaters. So what happens with that is they stream ads for us um, via different um, advertising platforms like Hulu, Amazon Prime, and there's a whole big list um, that are kind of channel focused. um, And they do that by targeting moviegoers who've been in their theaters. Um, So if you're familiar, your phone has an IP address. And when you walk into a theater, it actually picks that up. Um, and then can promote the ads through the services that you use. Um, so that's how we target um, people here in Monroe County, and, and they do that with their, we will have a list of the zip codes that they target as well. Um, so we make sure we cover people who can access our particular program um, as well. Commissioner Lee Jones said that she was glad the program is able to advertise this way, and the residents will be able to learn about the programs Monroe County has to offer. The commissioners, the commissioners unanimously approved funding for the outreach campaign. The next meeting will be held on October 20th. At the Bloomington Utilities Service Board meeting on October 12th, Utilities Engineer Phil Peden gave an update on a bid opening for the Deer Park Devon Lane Stormwater Project. He said they have only received one bid so far, and it is higher than the board anticipated. Yeah, I think I think it'll likely be a rebid uh, to, to process, but we'll have to process this and see see check check all the numbers and uh, but we certainly uh, want to see the number closer to a hundred thousand. Director of Utilities Vic Kelson explained that the funding for the project is different from a typical neighborhood project, since it is creating new infrastructure in the area. 
Assistant Director of Engineering Brad Schroeder added this project would count as green infrastructure, which has a budget of $400,000 per year. Kelson explained why the project is a priority for the city and its residents. This is a neighborhood that uh, is an older neighborhood. It's been there for a long time. And this particular problem has existed for a long time. The entire area is, that it's protecting is actually uh, very low lying. So the, uh, the objective here is uh, to get the, the neighbors have worked really well with us on this proposal, uh, as have the, the Deer Park folks. So it's, it's a very desirable project for a, a fairly large area that, uh, that suffers flooding on a frequent basis. Kelson said that additional maps and details will be provided the next time they discuss the project. The next meeting will be held on October 25th. Up next, WFHB news correspondents Cade Young and Abe Shapiro spoke with social work students who protested against the National Police Social Work Conference in Bloomington earlier today. We turn to Young and Shapiro for more. On Monday, the Bloomington Police Department hosted the National Conference on Police Social Work at the Monroe Convention Center. According to a city press release, the conference provides an opportunity for national leaders in both law enforcement and social work to share best practices in embedding social workers into police departments. In response, a small group of social work students formed to protest the conference. Grace Mitchell and Jackie Cope, organizers of the Indiana Abolitionist Social Workers, said that social work and policing should not be combined. Well, it's, it's absolutely offensive that the solution to, you know, state violence is to have social workers walk alongside state agents. We have our own history of social control that we need to reckon with, and pairing us up with the police is not going to do that. And it's antithetical to our values of social justice. The Indiana Abolitionist Social Workers wrote a letter of dissent to all deans, associate deans, and directors of Indiana University Schools of Social Work. Mitchell describes the points outlined in the letter. Well, we started our letter talking about the, you know, a brief, a brief statement on the inception and function of the police. And yes, I think all of this, uh, all of this supports the cultural myth that we have, that community policing is a real thing, that, um, that social problems should be policing problems when the function of the police has been and has, has been since the beginning to, uh, to control the population, to maintain inequalities, and it, those same inequalities that the police uh, manage in our society are those same inequalities that social workers need to be resisting against and need to be actively like creating alternative strategies to address. Putting us side by side with the police, these agents of the state, when you know um, their very existence uh, speaks to structural violence. Um, really violates community trust. It violates like the aspirational values of our profession, of our field. Cope and Mitchell said that the values of social work do not match the values of law enforcement. 
The police were born out of slave catchers in the South and union busters in the North. We're not aligning ourselves with that, um, and we shouldn't. Um, social work has its own history of policing communities as well, and that's something that we also need to reckon with. And pairing us up with the police isn't going to solve that and isn't going to solve police violence. Ending police will end police violence. There's no objective evidence that social work and police collaboration um, mitigates the harm of policing. Um, all of that evidence uh, comes from police self-reports. There uh, is no objective data on citizen outcomes. And again, uh, when you have an institution that um, is fundamentally unjust, aligning yourself with that institution and calling it harm reduction is just crazy to me. <laughs> Cope says that collaboration between law enforcement and social work is not a new phenomenon. Social workers have worked with police in the past um, and are call them police social workers as the name of this conference. So this isn't actually very new. Um, there is a history of um, social work complicity in, with police. Mitchell says that there are alternative solutions that our society can explore in order to address the root of the issue at hand. We can imagine better worlds. Like, again, and I've, I've said this before, too. There aren't only two options. People think that our options are to do nothing and sit on the sidelines or to walk hand in hand with the cops. Those are not the only two options. Um, there are alternative structures, alternative organizations, alternative ways of being in the world. And we have to imagine a world beyond the world that we currently live in in order to address these problems at their root. Mitchell and Cope said to reach out and support your local Black Lives Matter organization to learn more about reallocating funds from the police department to other city departments. For WFHB, I'm Cade Young. And I'm Abe Shapiro. Live and learn. Up next, we have a review of recent prison-related news and announcements from the producers of KiteLine, our public affairs program devoted to prison issues in the Midwest and beyond. KiteLine airs at 5.30 p.m. each Friday on WFHB Community Radio, and the program is available online at wfhb.org or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Prisoners at the Iman State Prison in Florence, Arizona, reported a water outage in the early morning on October 2nd. Hundreds of men were forced to share portable toilets and just a few gallon jugs of drinking water in several units at the prison, which houses more than 5,100 people. After the initial weekend outages, prisoners reported the water was being turned on intermittently for use, but appeared to be contaminated. Quote, Water that we are getting has a lot of sediment, such as dirt or something unknown in it, a man incarcerated at Iman said. We are sweating in our areas since we only have evap coolers. We are in a struggle to decide whether to use the water we do get for hygiene, food, or drinking, end quote. Several incarcerated people voiced their concern about maintaining their health and hygiene without access to running water. Quote, they tell us to go to meds and take them without water, one man wrote. 
We have overflowing johns without any type of sanitizer. All this on top of they still preach COVID protocols, but yet being unhygienic and not washing our hands and sharing the same john is okay, end quote. Another incarcerated man said that the department wasn't properly managing the dispersal of the water, so in some units, the prisoners who controlled the yards were hoarding it. On October 6, Department of Corrections spokesman Bill Lamoreau said the well that supplies the water to Iman was undergoing repairs. But more than a week after the outages first began, incarcerated people and their families maintained the water problems are ongoing, and the department is not providing them with any new information. On October 10th, a man living in Iman said his unit had been without their evaporated coolers for eight days. Quote, our housing gets a minimum 10 to 15 degrees hotter than the outside temp, he wrote. Quote, additionally, today they cut off our laundry again so we are unable to be hygienic and wash our clothing or our bedding after we have been sweating in our beds, end quote. This is not the first instance of a water outage at Iman. In June, when high temperatures were regularly above 110 degrees in Florence, prisoners also reported their evaporative cooling systems were not working. At the time, the department said the outages were due to, quote, scheduled work on plumbing. Water supply problems have plagued the department for years. In October 2019, after inmates in the Douglas prison complained of brown, foul-smelling water, the Arizona Department of Corrections confirmed water at the prison had a, quote, noticeable petroleum odor and taste, end quote. Water outages have become so common across the entire Arizona prison system that the department purchased a tanker truck to haul water for $18,000 in December of 2020. Political prisoner Eric King had his first evidentiary hearing on October 14th in Colorado Federal Court for a charge while in prison for allegedly assaulting a Bureau of Prisons officer in 2018. According to King, he was the one who was assaulted that day by a prison guard. The hearing seeks to determine the validity of disputed evidence presented by both the U.S. government and CLDC regarding the voluntariness of Eric's statements to government interrogators. Eric spoke to the BOP officers following hours of physical and mental abuse, being placed in a cell full of feces that guards refused to clean, and questionable Mirandizing that, as his attorneys are alleging, violated Eric's constitutional rights. BOP officers also deleted video evidence of the abuse and may have misrepresented facts about the incident to the FBI. King was originally set to be released in 2023, but now faces additional charges accusing him of assaulting a federal officer, which could tack on 20 years to his initial 10-year sentence. King has been held in solitary confinement for about three years without access to snail mail or phone calls outside of communications with his immediate family and attorneys. And, according to a lawsuit filed by the CLDC on his behalf, the BOP has colluded with white supremacists by staging assaults and bunking him with members of white supremacist gangs. Presiding Judge William J. Martinez made a motion prior to the hearing that it would be closed to the public because the court, quote, became aware of information which causes it to be concerned of a potential disruption of the hearing, end quote. The judge admitted on record that U.S. Marshals and others looked at social media accounts and saw discussions that people were going to be at the hearing. He didn't share specific details or say if there was a talk of a, quote, disruption on social media. Therefore, members of the media, the community, and one of his family members were not allowed to enter the courtroom, 
Only his partner was allowed to go in. You can follow Eric's case at supportericking.org. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Cade Young and Noel Herhusky-Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Kite Line is produced by Mia Beach. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Nikki Stewart-Ingersoll. And I'm Don Guerra. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at WFHB.org. You can be a part of our award-winning news team. For more information about joining our volunteer team of citizen journalists, email news at WFHB.org. WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, 